0: Lord, thank you for being our shepherd. You are the good shepherd and you have told us so clearly that apart from you, we can do nothing. And you have invited us to dwell in you and for your words to remain in us. And if we do that, we would bear much fruit and prove to be your disciples. You're a shepherd who has never done us wrong, and we are sheep who have so frequently gone astray, and we just count it the greatest privilege of our existence to call you our shepherd, and to cry out to you and say, Lord, continue to be patient, sustain us, um, renew us. And this morning, even, as we think about church planting and what it means to be a church and a congregation that is useful and effective, we pray that corporately, Lord, we pray as a congregation, we come before you, and we ask that you would indeed use us beyond anything we deserve as a church to showcase the glory of your Son and to spread the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. Why are we taking a break to look at the doctrine of the church? Particularly, we're looking at the doctrine of the church as we think about what it means to church plant and to do evangelism and to spread and to grow and to accomplish the Great Commission. So this is um, evangelism slash missions slash church planting. All of that is a direct, uh, directly tied and grounded on our ecclesiology. That is our doctrine of the church. And so I was asked to uh, contribute to this series. I was thrilled about that. Uh, The challenge in front of me was which text to choose, and I felt like Spurgeon, who says, you know, he was not an expository preacher, so on Saturday night, he would remark that, he'd look at these passages and they're all kind of voting, like, pick me, pick me, preach me, preach me. So I was given one spot, and I'm like, there's all these texts that wanted to be taught, and uh, so what do you do? Well, you just preach them all. You might have seen that uh, in the bulletin. You might have seen, uh, or if you looked online for for the download, you might have noticed that there were three different texts. And you might have thought, wisely, that sounds like a topical sermon. Just put various passages and get on with it already. And the reason I did that was actually quite deliberate because I'm actually going to attempt a mini exposition of all three texts. Um, So it's not like I just wanted to, you know, not that there's anything wrong with a a topical message, but this, I'm actually still intending to do a very brief and um, kind of a quick and notes version of these three passages. Really, the reason why is because they all contribute to understanding priorities for church planting. If we're going to do church planting well... We need to understand what the church is. And then when I finish these three texts, I want to try to draw some, some lines between these truths that we learned in these passages and how we as a church need to think about being a part of Grace Bible Church and thinking about what it would mean to go and be a part of a church plan. Because if these truths are understood, that's going to put some things in place that are going to help us have wisdom about moving forward in a very effective manner. So, the first text is Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Grab your Bibles, turn there. Why Matthew 16? Well, quite frankly, because this is the introduction to the church. This is the first time um, uh, the doctrine of the church is ever introduced. The doctrine of the New Testament church is introduced by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew 16. This is a passage about Christ building a holy church. Christ is building a holy church. Christ is the one who's doing the building, and he gives us a promise about the building, and he gives a a declaration of who's involved in this, and this relates directly to us whether we stay or whether we go. And so, by the way, what I'm going to do at the end here, I'm going to give away the uh, steal my own thunder here. When we look at these three texts and we start trying to draw some connections, you're going to see that if we get Ecclesiology right, all three of these texts and all the truths that they contain directly apply to whether you stay or whether you go. It doesn't matter if you stay at GBC or if you go to a church plant and here in the, in, somewhere in the Phoenix Valley or in New Orleans or across the ocean, it doesn't matter. These truths apply, they are that transcendent. And Christ's church, it looks the same no matter where you go. Of course, people wear different attire and people speak different languages. But the guts of the church, the structure of the church, the fabric of the church, the purpose of the church, the effectiveness of the church does not change. And so here we have the foundational passage on the doctrine of the church and we see how transcendent uh, this approach really is. Um, This transcends any culture, any language, any people group. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, and we'll probably basically I'll make a few comments on 13 to 23, but really, 13 to 20 is really all we're going to have time for. It's going to be very fast. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, this is an important historical mark because he's taking his disciples to teach them something, and in their journeys, they end up in Caesarea Philippi. If you've been to uh, Israel, you'll know this is way up in the north. This is not. Caesarea on the sea, this is Caesarea Philippi. Uh, In this time and era, it would be a Gentile city with a high percentage of Jewish population named after Caesar. And um, it's here where there was all sorts of pagan worship. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon, one of the highest mountains in modern-day Israel. And in fact, if you go there today, you can actually still see the ruins and relief work and some of the idolatrous carvings of the Temple of Pan, there was all sorts of worship going on here. It was polytheistic, syncretistic. And in this context, who knows? Maybe they just looked at maybe they just walked past the temple to Pan when they had this conversation. Jesus says to his disciples, "Who do people say that the son of man is?" And they said to him verse 14, "Some say John the Baptist." Maybe like Herod. Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist who, you know, somehow was reincarnated after his after he chopped his head off in prison. Others, Elijah. Maybe, he's, maybe this is the expected one of Malachi chapter 4. He's going to cause revival. And so some are pointing at John the Baptist, some are, some are claiming Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so there's all these rumors happening among the unbelieving populace about who is Jesus. He has already been very clear about his identity, and uh, anybody who would be believing the Old Testament would have embraced his claims because he uh, fulfilled, was fulfilling all of the prophecies given about him in the Old Testament. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, this is an interesting question because he's obviously just putting them right out in front. This is full exposure. So who do you say that I am? I mean, you are in the middle of a syncretistic nation of Israel who have about, well, no less than four opinions at least about who my identity and who I am. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great answer. You're the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus obviously refers to himself as the Son of Man in verse 13. That's his favorite term of referring to himself, and that's such a condescending term, the eternal God taking on humanity, and he is indeed the Son of Man. And he loves to refer to himself as the son of man. He just relished in his humility. And in the, answer, in the question of who do you say that I am, Peter gets right to it and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Of course, he's not denying that he's the son of man, but he's just accentuating there's something about your identity that could be missed merely looking at you in human flesh. Namely, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What set Peter apart from all the rest of the nation? What set him apart from all of the syncretistic, polytheistic answers that are being leveled at his identity? Why didn't Peter throw up his hands and say, I don't know, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, maybe a prophet, I don't know. He had such definitiveness, and he was right. The difference is God's gracious revelation. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And uh, we're even at the beginning of this passage that's going to be a, a foundational text for thinking about church planting, for thinking about missions, for thinking about evangelism, for thinking about the church. In this very text, it starts with a promise that's given by God. This is a revelation from God. The difference between Peter and all those other people in the the nation who were giving those other answers is that Peter had been taught by God. God himself was teaching him what he revealed in his word was patently true. Peter didn't embrace it because he was smarter than the rest. He didn't embrace it because he was gooder than the rest. He embraced it because God revealed it to him. And he was convinced, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so now, Jesus says, and I also am going to say something to you. And there's not a contrast here because there's a difference between the Father and the Son. There's just a moving on to something else. And what the something else is, is something that's not revealed in the Old Testament. Namely, verse 17 points out that you're actually embracing what was revealed in the Old Testament about me and my identity. But here's something, let me me tell you this, Peter. Peter. You'll look in vain to find this in the Old Testament. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I, I told you this is going to be quick, and this is the one pause I can afford, I hope. The one pause I can afford. Uh, just because, simply because verse 18 is, is so, has been so challenged. But first of all, just Notice that there's the promise. It's in the middle of the verse. Upon this rock, I will build my church. This, con- this, this promise about the church, from verse 13 to 17, we realize it's, it's given by God. Now in verse 18, we realize that it's unconditional. Jesus says, I will build my church. Not I might build my church. I may build my church. I hope to build my church. I will build my church. It's a promise. It's unconditional. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Notice also that he doesn't say to Peter and to the apostles, I will build your church. It's not the people's church, it's Christ's church. And notice that he also doesn't say, you will build my church. We're not building Christ's church. Christ builds Christ's church. This is a work that he's doing. He's building his own church, and it's guaranteed, it's promised. Now, the challenge of this verse, of course, comes from the phrase, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and then the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, what does that mean? And I'll just say, we don't have time to get into the whole debate. It's quite quite convoluted, and there's a lot that's been said about it, but I would just say, maybe, hopefully, this is a helpful way to understand what's happening here. I don't believe this text would be all that confused if uh, the Roman Catholic Church hadn't claimed it as a foundation in an attempt to make it a foundation for um, what's called papal supremacy and papal succession. Secession would be the fact that uh, the, the authority of the Pope is passed from Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope and they claim to take that authority all the way back through the centuries back to Peter which is, of course, absurd, because Peter was never even a bishop in Rome. and he, he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem and got shipped to Rome and killed there. So he never even functioned as a pastor in Rome, um, let alone the doctrine of papal secession, no matter what you might appeal to. It's just not taught anywhere in Scripture. Never mind the fact of the embarrassing history that the Roman Catholic Church never even claimed to have supremacy over other bishops geographically until 440 under Pope Leo I. So, what is this text talking about? I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. You know, Protestants have have tried to make this not be a passage about Peter, and they've tried to make the rock not Peter. And I, I just, as I've studied this over the years, every time I go back to it, I just find myself more and more and more and more convinced that he's actually talking about Peter. The reference to the rock here is Peter now that's not to ignore the fact that Jesus is the rock as Peter describes in his first epistle and that's not to ignore the fact that metaphors can be given about the church where Jesus can be the foundation he can be the cornerstone, he can be the builder he can I mean we can change metaphors in various contexts there are so many metaphors for the church they need to each metaphor needs to be its own metaphor in its own context but here it's very interesting that The way Protestants usually get around this is the word Peter versus the word rock, and the only difference here is gender. It's the word Petra versus Petros. Petros is masculine, that's the name of Peter, and Petra is the word translated rock, which is feminine in the Greek language. Now, this is an interesting interesting, um, study because what I've been told, what I was taught that I would find when I studied this word is Petra, the feminine, refers to really big, massive rock, you know, like some sort of stone underneath some beach or some sort of cliff or whatever. And then petras would be more like a little stone, like something you pick up and stone somebody with. And uh, so that's the technical distinction. So these aren't the same thing. Um, But I, I found out that's just not quite... The full story I mean you can find context where they might be used in distinguishing ways you can also find them used in context used in synonymous ways and I could even find a con- a context where a first century Jewish historian used both words in the exact same passage to refer to the exact same rock namely it was Josephus referring to the story of Jonathan climbing up to kill the Philistines and there was a cliff and he was talking about you know a cliff massive enough to climb that you could fall off of and die and he used in two verses apart Petros and Petra I don't think the distinction is going to quite hold up. The bottom line is the masculine is almost always used for the person in New Testament literature, both in the scriptures and in the patristic fathers, and in the feminine is often used for the rock itself. In secular literature, it's about 85% to 15%. 85% of the time, it's the feminine form. 15% of the time, it's the masculine form. It's just common, if you're going to refer to a rock, to use the feminine form, Petra. So here... Jesus says to Peter, I say to you that you are, and then if you think about the meaning of the words here, what, you, what the Greek ear or the Aramaic word would hear, uh, ear would hear would be, you are rock and upon this rock I'll build my church. That's what they would have heard. And so apart from the very simple fact that Peter's a man and so his name is Petros and you would refer to a rock, namely Petra, if he wasn't using this to refer to Peter, it kind of ruined the whole, the whole play on words. And by the, fact, by the way, it's just also important to notice that he goes on in verse 19 to say that I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And he continues talking about Peter. I mean, ultimately, the way I've played this out in my mind and I've tried to look, I've, I've read a lot of arguments about this for and against and everything in between. I just am left with the fact that we are called to be faithful to the text and all the other explanations that get at, you know, no, the rock is his profession, or no, the rock is, is Christ himself. If, if he were to, and, and you, you can find passages, obviously, Christ is the rock. We, we can see that in other texts of scripture. But in this story, for Jesus to be referring with the word rock to either himself or Peter's confession would require some sort of sleight of hand, some sort of body language that's clearly beyond the text. You know, I'd imagine Jesus saying, I say to you, and using big massive hand signals, you are Peter. And up on this rock, you know, I'm thinking, well, if that's what he did, well, then that's like an unfaithful telling of the story because the critical interpretive point just got left out of the text. Or maybe even worse, you are Peter, but on this rock, and drawing a speech balloon around its imaginary confession, this rock, the speech that you just said, no, it's just he's referring to Peter. Why is that important? Because Jesus guarantees he's going to build his own church, and he's going to do it on delegated authority. This is profound. Notice in 18b, it's so unconditional, this promise, that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades, you ever wondered about gates? You know, if, you put, if you're in a military context like this, you're talking about overcoming, conquering, having victory. And you think about the church in a militant context. So now I just kind of picture myself on some, you know, first century A.D. castle wall or city parapet looking out at the onslaught and the enemies coming and here comes the catapults and here comes the cavalry and you're thinking, man, they got everything. And then suddenly they bring out the gates. Oh no, the gates. (laughs) You ever thought about that? Like, why gates? Okay, you know, in a military context, gates. Of course, it's the point is, the gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol, the gates of death. It's used three times in the Old Testament. We, Omri just read one of them. Psalm 107, the gates of death. The other one's in Psalm 9. The other one's in, in Job. And in the passage in Job, the Greek translators translate the gates of death. Uh, and it says the gates of death and the gates of, of the dead. And then it says in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually says gates of Hades. In the Greek translation of Job, and that's in uh, Job 38, verse 17. What's significant here is it's talking about death. Jesus is describing a guaranteed, an con- unconditional promise on his building of the church that, you know what? what? What could possibly threaten this church? Oh, you could kill the Christians. And he says, no, nope. you actually can't even harm my church by killing my people. This is that ironclad of a guarantee. Death cannot hurt the church. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's profound. This goes back to the delegated authority that that Jesus mentioned in verse 18 when he says that he's actually going to build his church on On Peter, and then Peter, of course, was the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem in the first church, and you can read about that in the book of Acts. But what's interesting here is think about keys. Keys are the right to give access to something, to unlock and open doors, to close and lock doors. There's some sort of guardianship and some sort of access point that that is even Jesus is handing to Peter himself. He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And what's interesting here is that the keys to the kingdom, the keys to the church, is really the function that we know and often call church discipline. It's interesting that the, the delegated authority here is that the Christ in heaven is entrusting the, the, the delineation, the, the dividing line on earth between professing church and perverse generation and entrusting that to men. That's profound. In fact, notice the verb tenses here in verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven you know that's a lot of helping verbs or you know unless you're in grammar class right now your, your head might be spinning wow that's a lot what's going on there well shall makes it future have makes it perfect <laughs> and been makes it passive well, what does that mean Here's the way to picture verse 19. When something happens on earth under the authority of Jesus Christ by the delegated authority that God's given to the church, it reflects what already, it it shall have already been done in heaven. There's a reflection between the maintaining of the line of demarcation, the access point, To the kingdom on earth in the church to who's in the kingdom in in god's eyes that's a profound reality that's a profound reality think about think about the connection i mean there is there should be an inseparable connection between those two statements of what happens in heaven and what happens on earth if you've um if you know anything about music you know you know like when you tune a piano there's a there's a tuning fork right and you hit the hit the fork it's supposed to be like calibrated to the right frequency and then if your piano's off you you hit that and oh that sounds different so you change it or whatever you tighten it loosen it so you get that pitch just right well what's interesting is is you know if you and you probably have heard of sympathetic resonance when you get the the frequency perfect when it's exactly the same frequency the tuning fork and the string you can play one and hit the other without hitting the other or hit the piano key and then dampen it so that it stops vibrating. You can still hear the the resonance in the tuning fork. And not because you struck the tuning fork that time, but because the frequency was so pitch perfect that the frequency actually caused this to vibrate and cause its own sound. And perhaps sympathetic resonance is a helpful way to think about the connection between what happens in heaven and what happens on earth. When the church makes this kind of decree, it's something that shall have already been done in heaven. This is a profound, profound reality. It's like when I step back and I think about verse 18 and 19 together, and I think about threats to the church, I think about massive persecution, I think about external hostility, I think about a culture that's so anti-authoritarian and anti-Christ and anti-image of God and anti-gender and anti um, heterosexuality and anti-monogamy and anti-everything that ever has reflected the image of our God. And Christ just says in verse 18, yeah, hate, gates of hate yeah, they killed you? No, that can't, that can't hurt the church. Nope. And then he goes to 19, and it starts to just talk about this binding and loosing and clearly there's something here that must be maintained. Clearly there's something here that could be a threat. That could be a threat to GBC or a church plant. And namely, that's sin. (coughs) Excuse me. This binding and loosing comes back up. And real quickly, turn to chapter 18. Chapter 18, uh, you remember this is the the, the text that um, you are all familiar with, because this is where he describes this binding and loosing in detail. And notice... um, That we're talking about binding and loosing sin. Verse 18, chapter 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you that um, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And in the context, it's talking about confronting somebody on their sin. And they either respond or they don't. They either respond in repentance or they don't. They either turn from their sin or they hang on to it. And so there's binding and loosing that happens as a result. Look at Matthew 23 for a second. Here's one that rarely is brought up in this context, uh, but it's also an interesting parallel. 23, verse 13, Jesus begins the woes to the Pharisees, and there's binding here happening. Um, uh, It's a closing up, and this is helpful for thinking about the keys. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For uh, For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. I mean, this is an abuse of spiritual authority that cuts people off from access to the kingdom, from access through the church. Of course, this is before the church, but the point being, spiritual authority is preventing people from entering because of what they're doing with the truth and what they're allowing and prohibiting. They're allowing sin and demanding man uh, traditions based on human ability and man's traditions. And one more example that proves this is sin is in John 20. Look at John chapter twenty. Verse twenty three in Jesus' um, post resurrection appearance here. Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If the sins if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And using some different verbiage, but describing the same reality. There, you know, for us in the church today, and it, it's so—it's just so hard when we're sitting here at G, as GBC, thinking about a church plant. It's so hard to overcome the common ecclesiology that just is prone to think, "Man, what are we going to do to really get the gospel out there?" What are we going to do to just make this thing take off next level? We're talking revival. We're talking take over Phoenix. We want to see everybody part of this church. Well, sure. I mean, I'd love to see everybody a part of the church. I'd love to see a revival in Phoenix. I pray for such things. But we often start to pursue a path that has, that's quite foreign to Jesus' concern here. Quite often, we think about what's going to make a successful church plant in ways that would actually be man centered or might actually have to do with human ability or our own plan or our own ability. The issue here is holiness. Holiness. Christ builds his church and he's building a holy church. This is foundational to who we are as GBC, and this is foundational to a church plant. Christ is building a holy church. Verse 20, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And you skip down to verse 22, Peter rebukes Jesus for predicting his own sufferings. In verse 23, Jesus turns to Peter and says, it's like one good rebuke deserves another, except Peter's was horrific. But Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. And that's not an overstatement, that's, um, that's instructive. Why would Jesus call Peter Satan? Because you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And you're never more satanic than when you're man-centered. And Peter, the very rock of the church on which Christ actually did build his church, the first preaching of the first Christian sermon and the leader of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts, he had to humble him and expose Peter. There is man-centeredness in there. There's man-centeredness that makes you satanic. You know what's helpful about that is we, we can, we, we ought to have a little bit of fear and intrepidation as we think about remaining a part of GBC or going to be part of a church plant. Either one, neither are safe endeavors because we're, our, we're, the, we're that church's greatest liability. What a helpful mindset that ought to be. We would be that that church's greatest liability. And on the positive side, how sweet that we have a Savior who promises to sanctify us, and we can be a part of this, and he will actually use us in our brokenness and in our holiness. He will use us to build his own church. He's building his church, and it's a holy church, and he uses the people who are part of it. Hold that thought. Let's look at our next text. And this next one's going to take a bit of time as well. The third one's going to be very quick. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So in Matthew we learn that... Christ is building a holy church, here we learn that the power of the church is its purity. And you can see that this is a very similar truth. This truth is just such a sweet uh, display. In fact, the, the story of the early church is really an illustration of what Jesus was teaching on that very first, the, the very first instruction about the church when he introduced it to, to the world. For the sake of showing you where I'm going... Let's start in chapter 5, verse 12, and then we'll go back and pick up the story. Chapter 5, verse 12, Luke records, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Okay, we can stop right there. What Luke's describing here is profound church growth. And we've got volumes and volumes and volumes being written about church growth, church growth strategies. How do we make a bigger church? How do we grow a church? How do you do church planning? How do you do it well? How do you start a network? What's that look like? And so on and so forth. And here we are, we're just skipping over the inspired account of how you grow a church. What was the secret here? Well, notice in verse... uh, Um, Twelve. there's incredible unity among the believers. There's unity, there's doctrinal fidelity, they all have like-mindedness. Verse 13, notice that being a part of the church is so, as we're about to see, it's so unsafe that no one would dare associate with the church out of false pretenses. The church is not a safe place to play Christian. However, even though people wouldn't join the church because it was so terrifying of a prospect, they esteemed the church. In other words, they knew the church was the real deal. That's a powerful church. It's when people who aren't willing to repent and follow Christ and give him all glory, when they're not willing to join it, but they respect the church because they know it's legit. That is a healthy church. And then in verse 14, when people join that church, the only reason you would join that church is because the Lord himself added you to our number well this little section here from verses 12 to all the way through 16 is really it's told in such a way it's told in such a verb verb tense and such a verbal form that it's really kind of concluding the story it's giving background and where does this story actually begin actually it doesn't it begins all the way back in chapter 4 verse 32 and the way Luke starts the story is the same. He tells verses 32 through verse 35 entirely in an offline sequence. He just basically is just—it's like like basically what Luke's doing here is if you've if you've ever seen a, like a like a movie or a documentary where there's a narrator telling you what's about to happen, and then there's like an action sequence unfolds in front of you in the movie, and then then the narrator would conclude and explain. Okay, so this is what happened historically. da 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 da. da. Okay, well. Luke's like giving us the narration from 4.32 to 4.35, and then he picks back up with the narration in 5.12 and following. The action sequence is from 4.36 through 5.11. What's the action sequence? That's the story of three different individuals. First of all, Joseph, and then secondly, Ananias and Sapphira. What happens? Go back to verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were one heart and one soul. Uh, Not one of them claimed that anything was belonging to, to him was his own. All things were common property to them. And that's not communal living, that's common property in the sense that they all possessed property and they could sell it whenever there was a need. If If it was truly communal, then they couldn't have sold it when there were needs, and that's clearly what's happening here. Um, verse 33 and with great power and the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all for there was not a needy person among them all for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and would bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need and so that's the background that Luke gives us now the action sequence starts enter stage left First cameo appearance, first main character, really, of the story, Joseph. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is an eminent beginning of this story. Joseph, or Barnabas, was obviously a notable individual. And by the time you finish the book of Acts, you realize how ridiculously useful he was for the church and for the gospel cause throughout the book of Acts. A notable servant of the gospel, a very godly man. Clearly, uh, he's, he's a Levite, a notable Jew of high esteem, continues earning mention in the book of Acts. He's a landowner to some degree a uh, high degree probably of wealth. And in giving it to selling it and giving it to the church, people know about that. I mean, this is the kind of guy when he shows up at your small group and you got a visitor like who's that? And you're like, "Oh, that's that's Joseph." I mean, he's 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 a big deal. I mean, he's he just he he gave a ton to the church. Not that people would be talking about Joseph that way, but certainly there could have been that temptation. That's the kind of guy you're talking about. And what's interesting is what happens in the very next story. In fact, it's so important that we understand Ananias and Sapphira in light, in contrast to Joseph and what was happening in the church. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it... He laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's the sum. He drops this bag. Let's just picture a bag of money. I don't know if it was a bag of money, but a bag of gold. See, so he drops it right there. But, I mean, you know, think about how notable that is. In some sort of church function, maybe at Solomon's portico. If you've ever been to the Temple Mount, been the south side of that, uh, the, the, where, the, where Al-Aqaba, the uh, Al-Kiba, I believe, the, 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 the temple south of the Dome of the Rock. They met right there on that apron. And I just imagine... Ananias walking up with this bag of gold dropping it at the feet of Peter and then Peter just looks at him and, he's, and Ananias is probably expecting a little bit of praise, a little bit of notoriety some sort of response kind of like Joseph has earned in the church and um, Peter just looks at him and says Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? I mean, clearly the problem is not that he didn't give 100%. I mean, he could have, he could have given, it's, his, it's his, his land. He can sell it or not sell it. And if he sells it, he can give whatever portion he wants. The point is, he's making claims to have given 100%. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. It's a tragic story. Here, Ananias has seen the notable and noble name of Barnabas, and he concocts this plan to perpetuate... A reputation of generosity. Verse 7. Story gets worse. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Now you imagine, well why three hours? Hey, I just figure there's no running water, that's how long it took her to do her hair. I don't know. I don't know why it took three hours. <laughs> All I do know is that it seems, like the way, it seems like the way Luke tells the story is it seems like uh, it, it just, it's long enough for those young men to dig a six-foot hole and fill it again. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. So again, the idea here is not that giving is free. The point is the lie. For the sake of reputation. She said, Yep, that's the price, which was the price that they were giving, which technically was not the price. So there's the lie right there again in verse eight. Peter said to her in verse nine, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young man came in, the young men, sorry, came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church, I'll say. That's not an association you want to take lightly. And, notice the second half of verse 11, and over all those who heard of these things you got a church that's healthy, it's functioning, it's biblical. No need goes unmet. There's no hungry belly. Everybody has a godly work ethic, and there's an ability to meet the needs of those who who can't work. That's an attractive place to be for all the wrong reasons. And so God purifies his church. And suddenly, the desire to join the church... For selfish gain is terrifying. Ananias and Sapphira just proved it. Their contribution to the church was for selfish gain. They were pursuing a reputation. They were pursuing the praise of men. And God says, my church does not exist for the praise of men. My church does not exist for selfish gain. My church does not exist for selfish ambition. My church exists to to be a foundation for the truth, a pillar of the stronghold of the truth, for the salvation of the lost, for the equipping of the saints, so that all would redound to my glory. That's a church. Isn't that sweet? Terrifying. Terrifying. Why is the church so weak? Why does church planting seem to have lost its power? I read a book. I, I, I do a lot of reading, so if you, sometimes you hear me mention a book name, uh, don't, don't imagine it's a recommendation. This is definitely not a recommendation. I, I read a lot of stuff that makes me really frustrated, and it's, I find it kind of enjoyable in a weird way. This is one of those books. Dan, Dan Kimball wrote a book called... Um, they like Jesus, but not the church. They like Jesus, but not the church. And in that book, I read a haunting and memorable interview between Lee Strobel and Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was one of Billy Graham's partners. He was a close friend in the early days of Billy Graham's ministry. And... Um, He used to preach the gospel, but he ended up walking away and even attacking Christianity in his book, Farewell to God. Subtitle was, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. At the age of 83, here's what he said about Jesus. And these are the words of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is writing down Charles Templeton's response in this interview. and And Templeton said, In my view, he declared, He is the most important human being who ever existed. And that's the end of the quote, and then Lee Strobel continues. That's when Templeton uttered the words that I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward. Raising his left hand to shield his face from me, his shoulders bobbed as he wept. After recording that incident of that interview, Dan Kimball went on to comment: "Something about Jesus transcends Christianity and all that Charles Templ- Templeton had rejected." Jesus grabs hold of people, and it's hard to just ignore him or not to think of him once you get to know him. This is why I have so much optimism and hope for people in emerging generations. This comes in a chapter, by the way, on the popularity of Christ. The idea of the book is Christ is popular, the church isn't. Christ's not the problem, the church is. That's really the, the point of the book. And this is a, toting the popularity of Christ among Christians and non-Christians alike. The title of the chapter that I quoted from is Jesus as Son of God and Plastic Action Figure. It includes a slew of ungodly celebrities who wear Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and skilled musicians who write and perform their own perverse music that affirm that they are, quote, down with Jesus, he's cool. The subsequent chapters full of testimonies of those who successfully respect Jesus but have yet to commit their lives to the church. So it seems like Jesus couldn't be more popular, but the, uh, the church has descended to an irrecoverable depth of public disapproval. And so pundits and sociologists and pastors and theologians alike scramble for an approach to figure out how the church could possibly recover its power and effectiveness. Listen, Grace Bible Church, I agree. The church has lost her impact in many ways. I don't agree with these reasons why. In fact, I actually believe that the common remedy for Christianity to gain a public voice. um, It's not the pursuit of popularity. It's not going to be to scratch an itch of the society. It's not going to be to meet them where they're at. It's not going to be any of those things. The church's pursuit of popularity has left its left the church powerless. The power of the church is in its purity, in its holiness. Listen, the world has seen every cheap gimmick known to man. The world can smell that garbage a mile away. I can illustrate it. I remember one time driving down the freeway, I saw a billboard, and it said, um, it said, uh, "The, the, the naked truth on sex. And underneath it said, Palm Beach Community Church. And I I happened to be talking to a friend of mine while I was driving down the freeway and I just stopped mid, I mean, we were having a serious conversation. I'm like, whoa, whoa, like, hang on just a second. You're not gonna believe what I just saw. And so I said that, I I mentioned the the billboard and then he says, oh yeah, I saw that same billboard. I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, why would Palm Beach Community College have a series like that? I said, no, it's not Palm Beach Community College. It's Palm Beach Community Church. And you know what his response was? Oh, got it. It made no sense for an otherwise respectable but yet secular institution, like the community college, to do such a thing. But for the church to do something? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's a church. Got it. Gimmick. Smell that one a mile away. I mean, what could we possibly come up with that the church, that the world has not seen? Here's one for you. Holiness. The world needs to see the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. That's what it needs to see. The power of GBC and the power of the church plant is going to be in its purity and in its holiness. And when those two institutions are pure and holy and pursuing Christ, it's not going to be a safe place for the imposter to come join. But the outsider will look at it with respect and say, that's the real deal. If you want to be entertained, here's a place for you. You want to hear the word of God, here's a place for you. That's the power of the church. And when a church is pure like that, there's really only one reason left why people would ever join. Because they're sinners who, by God's grace, are desperate to get out of a perverse culture and be a part of the church because that's their new DNA. Our last text, it's going to be very quick. I knew it was going to be quick. It's probably going to be quicker than I was planning. So we've got to wrap this up here. we got time to read it, don't we? <laughs> Acts chapter 11. Why Acts chapter 11? Well, because this continues what we've already seen. And the reason why I wanted to go to Acts chapter 11 um, is because it really is a great application of both Matthew 16 and Acts chapter 5. This shows us that churches are planted by mature saints. I I, I couldn't really leave out Acts chapter 11 in Good Conscience being a series on ecclesiology and how it connects to church plant. Here's a passage of the very first church plant. Jerusalem was the first church. The first church plant was Antioch. Let's read it. Chapter 11, verse 19. So, then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, that's back in chapter 6, 7, and 8, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. So, if you notice, this is evangelism now happening because of persecution. So, saints are being equipped in Jerusalem. Persecution rises up and intensifies because of Stephen and his martyrdom, even under the hands of Saul, who then becomes the Apostle Paul. And so now those Jews scatter to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And this is the spreading of the gospel. But it's interesting that Luke makes it very explicit that they spoke the word of God to Jews alone. Really, literally, in the original, they spoke it to no one if not to Jews. Literally, it's exclusively Jews. That's great that they were evangelizing the Jews, but it's a problem that it was exclusive. Verse 20. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. These people are evangelizing Jews and Gentiles. It doesn't matter, Jew or Greek heathen, pagan, they're preaching the glories of Christ and the glories revealed in the Old Testament and revealed to the apostles in the New Testament. They're preaching it to everyone. Verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So notice, now you start to realize the church is recognizing what God's doing by way of the church growth and they they didn't send Barnabas to go be a professional church planner. They're trying to catch up with equipping the saints that God has been converting through initially what was mature and equipped saints namely Jews in Jerusalem who were so equipped they had won the battle against self-righteousness and their presentation of the gospel is more robust and full orb than even the Jews who ended up going to Phoenicia and Cyprus. And so here we are at Antioch. Massive revival among Jews and Gentiles. They have to send Barnabas to go give some leadership and equipping to this massive revival. Verse 23. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Verse 24. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So now Barnabas is recruiting Paul. So now you've got Barnabas and Paul giving oversight to this church, this church plant. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What a sweet story. What a sweet story. First called Christians. Where did that name come from? From those who were part of the first church plant in the history of the church, Antioch. Churches are planted by mature saints, equipped saints. It takes mature and equipped saints to mature and equip other saints. We can see in this quick narrative that I just read, we can see that evangelism rises out of body life Evangelism is not some product of philosophical wrangling over a cup of coffee, though people can get saved that way. Evangelism flows out of rich, robust, full orb body life. It's a corporate, congregational, ecclesiological function. We also see that uh, these people were used by the Lord because there was a willingness to do ministry God's way. They didn't, they didn't put a line on who they were going to share the gospel with. They just declared it to everyone God told them to declare it to. So we see godly Christians in verses 19 to 21. We see qualified leaders in verses 22 to 26. And we see brotherly love then in verse 27 to 30. In fact, these Gentile Christians had never even met the Jews down in Jerusalem. And they took place in raising up funds to meet the needs in an upcoming famine that only occurred down in Judea, not in their neck of the woods. That's profound brotherly love. Listen. Grace Bible Church, I just want to take, I want these three texts in your mind so that I can maybe just make a quick exhortation. I want these truths about Christ will build his holy church. Um, The purity of the church is its power. And um, that mature saints are necessary for church plants. And I just want to say that we need to be all on the same page regarding GBC and the church plant this is an incredibly exciting endeavor it's just thrilling to think about what the Lord has done here for 20 years and that on your hearts as I'm hearing from some of you and I'm hearing even the history and the heartbeat of this church for 20 years uh, just the excitement and anticipation of seeing this replicated this is thrilling and what's clear is that God has given us a promise that he would build his church. And these truths need to inform us regardless of going or staying. But it's important that we have a vision of what's important for such an endeavor. We need to have a biblical vision of what's important for such an endeavor. Some of you are, as I've talked to you, you're kind of considering, like, hey, you, maybe you're, 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 you're praying about it. Maybe I'm just, I don't know, I'm not sure. This is really exciting. i let you know, regardless if you go or stay, everybody should be excited, um, But maybe here's how you would think about such such an endeavor. First of all, when you think about about the needs of GBC and think about the needs of a church plant in light of these three texts, in light of the fact that God's promised to build his church and he's going to build a holy church and he's going to do it through holy saints and that the purity of the church is its power, those apply to both sides of the equation. However, maybe there would be some clarity that could come from some differences between GBC and a church plant. Obviously, GBC was not planted yesterday. There's a, an effectiveness and, um, a, uh, to this ministry. It, it, it operates like a well-oiled machine in, in, in many ways. And, and that's the result of God's grace over 20 years of your faithfulness to the Lord right here. And not even right here physically, but wherever the church has been over the last 20 years and then right here for the last handful of years. And that's just sweet to think about. And that's something we want to think about in light of the church plant. Because there is something to what God has produced that took 20 years that we would want to maintain. That 20 years of maturity and that 20 years of effectiveness uh, can't be be ruined or compromised. But at the same time, if you do a church plant, as we've talked about, there's always going to be a cost. And so the the cost that we've talked about among the leaders is we've used the illustration of, Uh, The cost of, um, you know, when you lift weights. When you lift lift weights, there's little micro tears in the muscle that make it stronger. But it doesn't pull anything. It doesn't put a limb out of joint. It doesn't, you know, rupture the Achilles. Uh, Otherwise, that was a bad weight session. Uh, Oh, I regretted that one. And so there's an idea of just, yeah, there's going to be a a, a pain. Of course, there's a pain emotionally. Of course, there's a pain relationally. But when it comes to what makes the church the church, um, we want to maintain what GBC has become. Why is that so important? Well, you think about it, if I use Jerusalem and Antioch as the example, as a paradigm. For Jerusalem to produce in an Antioch, it requires an equipped church, and then it requires equipped saints. And you think about what the Lord has done here, I just, I love getting to know the history of this church better and better over the last eight months. So let me just pick on a couple of my dear friends here. Um, Josh and Omri, just to pick two. What's it going to take? I mean, if by God's favor in the next 10 years there was a a Josh 2.0 and an Omri 2.0. What if over the next 15 years there was a Josh 3.0, 4.0, 5.0 and an Omri 3.0, 4.0 and 5.0? We wouldn't want to hurt that. We wouldn't want to slow that down. That's critical for the sake of this church and church planting. So by staying, you're not saying I'm not excited about church planting. Maybe you're staying as your greatest contribution to your church planting. I mean, the way this works, humanly speaking, is if let's just say you took a percentage of this ch- congregation and we planted a church and, and uh, the percentage that the Lord had laid it on your heart and you're like, that's, that's going to be really strategic. I want to be a part of this uh, startup endeavor. That's really exciting. It's something that the Lord just knit my heart to from the first moment I heard it. And uh, you've counted the cost and you've sought counsel and you say, man, this is exciting. Let's go and then there's a a hole here. Well, just the way it works by way of networking and by way that God usually works, it's probably likely that even the holes here would be filled quicker than the church plant would double just because of the reputation of the church, um, the location, the networking, the familiarity, um, the, 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 the networks of the people involved in this church. And then something that's new and startup wouldn't have quite have that you know, be as known. Um, that would usually take longer. So here's what happens. Think about it from a GBC perspective. What happens if within a year after planting a church, those, the, the Lord's bringing in new saints, but what left was a very mature group of saints... And then God brings in new believers and ill-equipped saints. Suddenly, the effectiveness of GBC is equipping those dear brothers and sisters. That's that's what the church is all about. And so we got to be ready to meet those needs. And vice versa. What's a church plant need to succeed? Well, it needs all of the same gifts, but of course, it's not going to be functioning at the same mature level. So there's an element where to go be part of a church plant, there's obviously a kind of an entrepreneurial spirit and there's an attitude of willingness to roll up your sleeves and get after it. And, um, and, and this church has done that before it had a building for 14 years. And that's just exciting. That's thrilling to hear about. And of course, whether you stay or whether you go, we got to have that attitude of willingness to get after it and roll up our sleeves and, and serve the Lord. But we've got to think about this church plant and we've got to think, Look, of course, this isn't going to be a GIBC in the next two to three years, but we want it to be on a trajectory that it could be. And what if this church plant was able to plant another church so that there would be a granddaughter church in 10 years? How sweet would that be? And again, the last thing I want to do is put numbers out there as if I'm trying to forecast, or that's, that has nothing to do with it. I'm just, just for the sake of clarity, so you can follow my, my point here. We've got to be thinking about what it takes for a church plant to be able to replicate itself. To see the lost saved. To see the saved equipped and matured. To see men trained up and sent out so that churches could be planted. You can see how helpful it is to think about these realities. Do you love church planting? I hope. I hope that would help you know whether you want to stay here and be a part of church planting or go and be a part of church planting. Do you love the established church? I hope. I hope that helps you know whether you want to stay here and be a part of an established church or go there and help it become an established church. But those things need to be remain, remain clear in our minds, and hopefully that's helpful for us as we pray about the future. So let me close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for these texts and these truths, and thank you for um, even just how transcendent your word is. And I pray that, Lord, as we think about how the church functions and how it operates, that it would even help us and to think about what's important and what's what's totally common between GBC and a church plant, which is so much, and then what also would be different, which is also important to recognize and to be aware of. And I pray that those similarities and those differences would help the head of every home in this room to think very uh, eagerly and soberly and humbly about the role that we all must play. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for letting us be a part of such an incredible thing, to think that we, Lord, what, what, if, what if 10,000 years into eternity we stood in heaven and we realized that what, what we've been looking at by way of uh, uh, far out in the East Valley or farther out in New Orleans? Or even, as we've already seen, Genoa, Italy. What, what if these ventures were just another, another birth in a long line that began with Antioch? Lord, that's what we want to do, and that's what we want to be a part of. So help us to do that to your glory and your glory alone. In your name we pray. Amen.